Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Stanford, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Deborah Smith. Thanks for having me. Happy to be on. Well, great to have you here. We were chatting before this interview about what's happening in the institutional world and in the New York area, which is essentially where you're based. And But before we dive into the details, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Sure. So I am the co-founder and CEO of the CenterCap Group. We are a boutique investment bank focused entirely on the real estate space. So we work with owners and operators, service companies, REITs, investment managers, pensions, endowments, insurance companies, and the whole host of LPs on pretty much anything real estate. Our motto is all things real estate, and we hope to provide best-in-class services across a whole range of services within the industry. A lot of our listeners are used to talking to investors, whether it's individual investors, be it through syndication, sometimes family offices. And then, of course, there's the whole institutional play that demand a completely, they have a completely different set of expectations. And for you who plays in that world, how would you describe those differences? Uh, That's a good question. I think the product, whether it's multifamily, industrial, self-storage, there is a different expectation. There's a different return requirements when you look at any piece of real estate between what we call institutional and the non-institutional market. I think institutions are more focused in this era around owners, operators, vertically integrated platforms, higher yielding, higher return type product. They're focused on writing larger checks because they're big institutions. And so they are focused on institutional uh, players that have institutional backgrounds, that have track records with larger deals and larger pipelines versus a high net worth or non-institutional, which we look at in terms of smaller check size, can be an allocator, need not be an owner and an operator in terms of owning their property manager. And they are more focused on a yield uh, or a cash yield each year as as opposed to perhaps an all-in return. And that drives some of the investment criteria that they look at. That mirrors exactly what we see as well. Now, one of the things that we have seen, of course, is that the institutional players having the ability to write those larger checks are also, many of them, very highly concentrated in the office, the commercial office space, which is an area right now that is going through a tremendous amount of upheaval. I mean, heck, in in Manhattan right now, in Midtown, the vacancy rates are just through the roof. And those buildings that are on a 200 by 200 square foot floor plate, there's no opportunity to repurpose those buildings as residential ever because the floor plate's too large. What's your perspective on what's happening with a lot of those players? Now, I recognize that there are some that only play in the multifamily space as well. Yeah, look, I think when it comes to the office sector, uh, conversions have become the big the big buzzword. But as you rightly pointed out, a lot of these properties, it sounds good, but practically is not possible, right? The problem with an office building for a start, for an uneasy level, it doesn't have windows, right? So that open, the floor plates don't work, the ceiling heights are off, the plumbing, et cetera, doesn't work for an apartment style building. Now we are seeing some conversions, but they are not necessarily in a New York City. They could be more suburban where it actually is easier 
to translate it over into a secondary purpose. So I think, you know, there are some bubbling of folks that are talking about that office will be a great buy over the next five or so years. But I think for that to have any chance, there needs to be a massive reset of probably where the bases are. Absolutely. I mean, we've been looking at two that are downtown properties in Houston, both buildings, the floor plate is not too large. In the case of one building, you're still facing the specter of having to drill a few thousand holes through concrete and hoping you don't hit too much rebar in order to just, you know, plumb your bathrooms. That in and of itself is a huge issue. Yeah, I I think that's right. I, I think a bigger question for the office space right now is whether there is going to be a reset around the impact of remote working. And the debate has always been since the onset of COVID is that with remote work system that, you know, you'll have less people in the office. So that gives you an opportunity to downsize. And the story goes on. I think the bigger question there is, is how you do you need to repurpose even your floor plates for existing office tenants to accommodate for the shifting change of how your staffing model works? And how you you deal to deal with the logistics of coming in and out of offices, where it's a different kind of work environment than we had contemplated. So how does that play into the amount of square feet that a, an office tenant now needs versus before? And that I think the jury is still out. They're trying to figure that out. I would agree with that. I mean, the the days of the traditional walled office for every single employee, I think, are over. There's a lot more conference rooms. There's a lot more what they call hotel space for someone to work in the office two to three days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But yet that is shared office space. The files are all online anyway, so no one needs a, their filing cabinet. Right. And it's changing. It's reducing the footprint requirements for the same company, for the same law firm, with the same number of employees, they can shrink into a smaller floor plate. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what we'll see is the, the role of technology in the office space and making remote work possible. 10 years ago, it was not. And, you know, in the debate around remote working and the return to work concept is a belief that do you need to return to work? Because that's what always happened. That's what happened after we had 9-11. That's what happened after the GFC. But I think the, the world has evolved since then. We have technology that allows us to not go into an office. A technology allows us to do many more things than we ever contemplated. And the mix between in-office Zooms, Teams, all these other mechanisms, we've learned to work with them. And so I think the world is evolving and how those things all fit together may end up being tenant-specific, company-specific, and figuring out who really needs to be in an office space and who doesn't. Absolutely. Now, let's shift over a little bit to the world of multifamily investing. Obviously, valuations are falling based on the raise in interest rates, so cap rates are, are rising. In one sense, cap rate doesn't really matter because for any new loan today, it's going to be massively debt coverage limited. You're not going to be bumping up against a loan-to-value hurdle. But even with that, we're seeing softness in the multifamily market. A a lot of projects that were underwritten in the last couple of years were were done with bridge debt that are not going to be facing the cash-out refinance that they were hoping for. They're going to be looking at a cash-in refinance if they can get it done at all. What, what's your perspective? Multifamily, I think, is complicated in the sense that if there's ever a sense of local market, this is it. On the one hand, we see what you're saying. There is a lot of debt coming on maturing, and you have to refinance that. When you bought your property at a five cap and debt was three, all the numbers kind of worked. 
But if you have to refinance at 506, then the economics of that situation are very, very different. And I think what helped through COVID through to today is that NOI was growing at a faster rate beyond what anyone, nobody was underwriting 13% growth versus where, where your debt rates were. And I think that the NOI has slowed down. And so that's balancing that equation out a little bit. We're hearing a lot more about negative leverage. Uh, but on the other hand, if you in offshoots, workforce housing, affordable housing, senior housing, some of these other products, we're still seeing strong demand. And we're still seeing multiple bidders, more than 10 showing up for properties to bid. And yes, pricing is a little higher than it was 12 months ago, but there is definitely capital in the market. It may not have been as deep as as two years ago, but it is certainly there. So when you're having conversations with institutional investors, I know, for example, many of the investors that we speak with certainly have altered their criteria. Many of them are saying, well, why would I put any money into anything that has any risk? I can just go put money in T-bills and get 4.85% that way without taking any risk. Why would I take any real estate risk at all? That's kind of at one end of the spectrum. And then there's the other folks that are saying, well, why would I jump into a deal today? Maybe I'm catching a falling knife. Why wouldn't I just wait for the distress to hit the streets? Yeah, look, I, on the first one, it's an allocation. Because if we if we just took the case that we should only ever put capital into the things that yield the highest return, then it, that's a very different conversation than I think most investors are looking for some allocation and some balance as to how they're committing their dollars to opportunities. I think on the second one, there is merit to that for sure. I think some of the folks that we're looking at um, and we're talking to on traditional multifamily is they are seeing opportunities, but they look at it more on a replacement cost basis. And so they're looking at and they're saying, look, if I can take it down, even all cash today, it's at such a point versus the replacement cost that it's worth me taking the risk if I believe interest rates are going to adjust in the, you know, somewhere in the medium term. And we're definitely seeing folks do that because they believe in the underwriting and they believe in the long-term trajectory of the real estate class. Absolutely. And that's the difference between an investor that's purely IRR-driven versus someone who's simply looking for, who understands that in an inflationary environment, debt gets devalued just as fast as savings and just as fast as the dollars that get spent at the grocery store. So if you're on the winning side of that equation, you're going to come out okay anyway, irrespective of what the IRR might say on a spreadsheet today. Correct. And look, it can be, you know, most institutions look at it as a combination of yield, annual yield and and asset appreciation. What's interesting is depending on where you are in the institutional spectrum, yield and return requirements mean different things to different people. You know, we tend to zero in on this core and core plus value add and opportunistic. But what those things translate to on a risk adjusted basis tends to depend on the class of realist of the investor that you're op- that you're talking to. Why? Because they evaluate risk depending on the spectrum and the hold on which they're looking at to hold it. Absolutely. So what I guess what that means is looking in a 24-month time horizon versus a 10-year time horizon could lead you to a very different answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we see, you know, we take on opportunities and similarly when we talk to institutions about opportunities, it tends to start with who is the manager, who is the operator, 
right? And then look at what their pipeline is and the kinds of deals that they're chasing. Because at the end of the day, what gets you through cycles, everyone can be a rock star since the GFC in multifamily. It's a lot of people have a lot of great track records in multifamily. The more interesting play is, you know, who are the managers that have gone through more than one cycle? And who are the ones who've made mistakes and figured out how to make things better? Who are the players then when money was free took fixed rate debt as opposed to floating rate debt, even though it was a little more expensive because it was worth them to lock in the security of the longer term, right? Who are the folks that took 65% leverage over 80% leverage because of that cost? And so this every manager even beyond the track record, got that track record through different means. So it's looking at that track record and particularly in this environment, it's who has the safer hands. And and that's what we look at in opportunities and I believe institutions do too. I love that. Well, Deborah, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? You can find us on LinkedIn at Senecap Group or me, Deborah Smith, Senecap. will find me on LinkedIn and our website, which is www.senecapgroup.com. Fantastic. Well, love the perspective. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Deborah Smith at centercapgroup.com. Link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>